world. And some of us have um, walked through some hard paths even this week and throughout our lives. Sometimes we feel lost. Sometimes we don't know how to live. We don't know what is true. And so, Lord, we take this time to listen to you. And we are grateful that you give us truth, you give us hope. And you show us, Lord, the way of atonement, the way in which the blood guilt that rests upon us and upon this world may be removed. Lord, we pray that you would give us a picture of this atonement today that is solemn, but is also something that drives us to gratefulness, to thankfulness, to worship before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the main themes of this text is blood. Guilty blood and atoning blood. And you know, I could imagine someone looking at Christians and saying, what is the deal with you guys and blood? You know, you you sing about it in all your songs, nothing but the blood. Uh, There is a fountain filled with blood. You talk about it, you, you talk about the body and the blood of Christ at the Lord's Supper. I mean, it's all a bit gross. We're a modern, sanitized society. Do we, do we really need to talk about blood? But we cannot get away from the topic of blood. We know the significance of blood, both scientifically and theologically. Blood is life. Without blood, our bodies return to the dust. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. For millennia, it's been the most powerful symbol of life and death that is available to us. Its existence is entirely natural, but the sight of it is never natural. Blood inside the body is hardly thought of, but blood outside of the body is never ignored. The shedding of blood is the pouring out of life. And so it is either the greatest symbol of destruction or the greatest symbol of sacrifice. It cries out to God. That's how the Bible describes shed blood as crying out to God. And its message is either one of guilt or one of atonement. Our passage here begins with guilty blood. And so that will be my first point. Guilty blood. The text begins with a famine in the land of Israel. It's sort of vaguely placed in the days of King David. Uh, Famines were not an uncommon thing in the dry lands of the Middle East. But after three years, David is beginning to wonder if something is going on here. And so he seeks the Lord. And he's told, there is guilty blood upon the nation because of something that the prior king Saul had done. There's blood crying out to God for justice. And God never forgets a drop of guilty blood. That's one of the first things we need to see here. God never forgets sin. 
Some sins receive immediate judgment. Some sins aren't revealed for many years. All sins will be judged eventually. No sins slip through the cracks. Understand this, all of you. In God's kingdom, no sin is forgotten or dismissed. Saul's sin is not forgotten. We don't know exactly when the murder of these Gibeonites happened. The Bible doesn't really tell us any more of the details. But at least it would have been several decades prior to this event. And just to remind you quickly about these Gibeonites, they they do have a backstory. And the the key with remembering them is that uh, they were tricky little guys, right? And so if you can remember in your heads, my son, Gibeon, uh, is a tricky little guy. You will never forget that the Gibeonites are tricky little guys. Uh, When Israel first arrived in the land of Canaan, they trick Israel into making a covenant with them. Um, It's a great story. You can read it this afternoon if you want, Joshua chapter 9. They show up with ratty clothes, all messed up. They They have moldy bread, and they claim to have come from very, very far away. And so Joshua and the leaders of Israel, without even consulting the Lord, say, yeah, sure, we'll make a covenant with you. That sounds fine. And they do, only to find out that, in fact, these people live right in four major towns, uh, right in the middle of the territory of Benjamin. Now, remember, Benjamin is the tribe of Saul. Right? And so you begin to understand why he may have wanted these people out of his land. And maybe those four nice-looking towns would be good to have under his control. And so at some point in his reign, he tried to wipe the Gibeonites out. For a while, Saul's sin goes unpunished. But God does not forget sin, right? These, these Gibeonites, they're, they're helpless. Four towns in the midst of a whole nation. But God defends the weak. And so he calls the nation of Israel to account for this sin. And it's important, by the way, to recognize that um, this is not just a personal sin by Saul. It's a corporate sin by the whole nation because the covenant was made with the nation of Israel and Saul broke it as the official representative of the nation, their king. And this points us to the second thing that we want to see about guilty blood. Its stain always spreads. Sin spreads. I hardly need to tell you guys this because we've just worked through an avalanche of consequences from David's life, right? Spurring almost all of it basically from this sin with Bathsheba. And surely you know from your own lives how one sin turns into a lie to cover that sin, which turns into another sin to back up that lie, and then you involve someone else, and you're in a mess. Unless sin is stopped right at the outset with full confession and restitution, it always spreads. It's a voracious infection. Just think what, have happened, what might have happened in David's life if he had recognized his guilt, right, after taking Bathsheba, chapter 11, fully confessed it and faced the consequences. I mean, multiple wars might have been avoided. Here in the case of Saul, 
his sin has drawn the whole nation of Israel under God's wrath. And people are suffering because of it. There's a famine. This is the way of sin. Yours will not be a special exception. Sin is not respectful of your boundaries. It seeks your utter destruction. It yearns for maximum harm. And it is never lazy. It never takes a vacation. But how do we see our sin? How is it revealed to us? The people of Israel did not remember uh, during their three years of famine what Saul had done to the Gibeonites. David did not remember, although he certainly had good cause to remember some of Saul's unjust actions. It is God who remembers and who identifies the sin in their midst. David goes to him and God tells him the source of this guilty blood. In the same way, God continues to reveal our sin to us through his words. If you do not think you have much of sin in your life, you may not have inquired very carefully of the Lord. This is why we take time each week in our service to read God's law. It is a light that shines on the cockroaches in our heart and reveals them. God's Word gives us clarity, together with the Spirit convincing us of our guilt and driving us to repentance. And so, with the guilty blood identified, we are forced to ask with David, how can we make atonement? And we find in our text that we need atoning blood to cleanse us from guilty blood. We need atoning blood. So let's look at my second point, atoning blood. David understands that atonement needs to be made. He gets that. Um, But it's the Gibeonites who suggest what that should look like. They suggest that seven representatives from Saul's family die to atone for the blood guilt of the nation. This is a difficult scene to accept, isn't it? So it's important to know what God's law says about situations like this. In Israel, murder was a capital crime. It demanded capital punishment. Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Uh, In fact, Numbers 35-31 specifies that no ransom shall be accepted for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall be put to death. And so the Gibeonites were right. They say, this is not a matter of silver and gold. And they're right. In, in, In fact, If they were following Israelite law, the Gibeonites should demand a life for a life. That's what God's law says about murder. A life for a life. One Israelite executed for each Gibeonite that Saul murdered. But they deny that right in verse 4, right? They say, it is not for us to put any man to death in Israel. Instead, they ask that seven representatives die in the place of the nation as substitutes. Uh, The number seven was a symbolic number for completion, fullness. And so they're saying, we will consider the death of these seven men to be sufficient to make complete atonement for the blood guilt of the nation. And in their death, We do see a picture 
right, of the substitutionary atonement of Christ for the guilty blood of his people. For we also are under the sentence of death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is the consistent message of God to his creatures. In the Garden of Eden, you shall not eat of the tree. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Ezekiel 18.4, the soul that sins shall die. How then can God's people live? How do they live? Again, over and over, the message is through a substitution, through substitutionary atonement. Uh, Someone must die in your place. We see this over and over through the sacrificial system of Israel, the death of animals in the place of people. We see this in all sorts of unique stories throughout the Old Testament. Um, We've got, you know, some that might, might come to your mind. Abraham commanded to sacrifice his only son Isaac, finding a lamb to take Isaac's place, a substitutionary atonement. Or the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt and the blood of the lamb that has to be painted on the doorpost, right? Substitution. Here also in our text, we see a unique picture of substitutionary atonement. And I think we're driven to see at least two important things about atonement here. First, we need a better atonement. How can the death of seven men pay for the murder of hundreds, probably thousands, of Gibeonites who were relying on a covenant that Israel had made in the name of the Lord? It can't really, right? It's just representative. In the same way, the temple sacrifices that Israel relied upon, they couldn't actually pay for the many sins of the Israelites. All they can do is point to the need for a better atonement. The very fact they had to keep doing them shows this to us. It makes it obvious. Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And you know, I bet these uh, seven guys that Israel decided to be, would be their representatives didn't go willingly, right? They didn't volunteer for this job. Which further highlights how insufficient this atonement was. The people of God need a willing sacrifice whose own blood is not already guilty but blameless and whose sacrifice is divinely sufficient for all who seek cleansing. Only Jesus can offer that atoning blood. Secondly, we see here the costliness of atonement. And this is brought out powerfully by the narrator through the story of Rizpah, right? I mean, he easily could have just left this out uh, from verses 9 to 12. He could have just left that out. And you know what? Maybe as readers... We would have preferred that because this is a horrendous picture to have to see. Her two sons, her five nephews executed and then their broken bodies hung up to be exposed. Most people would take a large detour around that scene, but Rizpah does not. She comes when the blood is still fresh and she she stays until only their bones are left. 
Notice how carefully the narrator tells us the length of her stay. Verse 10, from the beginning of the harvest, which would be around the end of March, until rain fell upon them from the heavens. That's probably around mid-October, between six to seven months. She stayed there during the hottest, the driest months of the year, keeping the birds away by day, the beasts away by night. Can you imagine the stink? Why do we need to know about this? It makes us shudder just to think about it. I don't want to think about it, right? You see, it demands that we acknowledge the cost of atonement. This scene demands that we take atonement seriously. Rizpah demands that we take the cost of atonement seriously. It is right to be solemn about such a terrible thing. It is right to be aghast. It is right to be grossed out. Guilt cannot be dismissed with a trivial wave of the hand. It demands a terrible, terrible cost that unbelievably our God himself determined to pay when he was also hung on a tree. If you have grown too used to the cross of Christ, the blackness of Golgotha, perhaps the pain of Rizpah can sharpen your senses once more to the terrible cost of atonement. There's one final point I'd like to make this morning, though, so let's look at my third point now, and I admit this is a little bit clunky, but we have to stick with the pattern of my points, so we're going to call it saved blood. So my third point, saved blood. You see, the land of Israel has gone for three years of famine with with little to no rain. And then finally, as Rizpah finishes her long vigil, rain falls upon them from the heavens. It's a small consolation for Rizpah that her son's sacrifice was not in vain. And for the rest of Israel, it is salvation. Just imagine that day in Israel as the drops finally begin to fall. Some of the children would hardly even know what was happening. Everyone rushing out and just standing under the cleansing droplets, right? Soaking in that water. Thankful and joyful because they are saved. Atoning blood has satisfied the blood debt of the nation. And God has responded to the plea for the land. They are saved. But there's an even more powerful image of saved blood in the text. Once more, we run into Mephibosheth. You see that in verse 7? You remember Mephibosheth, right? He was the crippled grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan, David's friend. And now, he, he would have been the most obvious guy to hand over to the Gibeonites. Uh, after all, he appears to be the only true heir of Saul who's left. Rizpah's sons, they're illegitimate because she's a concubine. Merab's sons are not through the male line, so they can't inherit. But Mephibosheth, he's the final heir of Saul. And yet, his blood is safe. Why? Because of the promise. The promise between David and Jonathan, the covenant that they had made. You see, 
This comment in verse 7, it's almost a little bit parenthetical. It's almost like in parentheses. But it's there for a reason, of course, as all Scripture is. The narrator is contrasting Saul and David here. Saul is a covenant breaker, right? We saw the terrible consequences of that breaking of the covenant. But David is portrayed here as a covenant-keeping king. He is a reminder to us, to all of Israel, that there is a king who keeps his covenant. Under his rule, you can be safe. David's loyalty draws a circle of safety around Mephibosheth and reminds us that we also are enfolded into a circle of safety by the final Davidic monarch, Jesus. You see, this is what happens when we acknowledge the guilty blood that runs through our veins and we claim the transfusion of Christ's atoning blood. We are safe. We are encircled by his covenant promises. When you think of being safe, maybe you think of Daniel in the lion's den, uh, surrounded by lions who've been starved to the point of desperation, but whose mouths are shut. Or maybe you think of Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Walking around in the middle of a fiery furnace so hot that the guys, the soldiers who throw them in, die from the heat. But the safety that comes through the covenant guaranteed by Christ's atoning blood is much better than that. For those are only physical situations. The safety that Jesus gives you is safety from the just wrath of God. Jesus makes this point clear when he told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. How can you be eternally safe? Only by claiming the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. So do not be afraid to go like David to inquire of the Lord about the guilty blood that is upon you. For because of Christ's sacrifice, your blood is not just safe, but precious. Yes, your blood, which you have not kept pure. Christ died to purify. And within the arms of his covenant, you will be safe. For he has said, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you give us this great and powerful promise that you will not lose anything of what the Father has given you. And Lord, indeed, we do claim for ourselves, the atonement of Christ, we need it, Father, for we have guilty blood upon us. We know that we have not kept our blood pure. And so we claim the blood of Christ. We recognize the, the terrible, terrible thing that atonement is. 
for the breaking of the covenant is a terrible thing, Lord. And so we ask for Christ's atoning blood and we thank you for the safety that we have underneath that blood. We pray this in Jesus' name.